Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nuts. That's the nothing personal word of the day for Wednesday, 22223, February 22nd, 2023. Nuts. There's nothing like a good nuts joke. And I love it when owners talk about nuts. You may have noticed in the last couple of days, we're going through a lot of Major League Baseball owners and what they're saying and how funny some of it can be and how full of it they are. But this is the time of year when they speak. Picture it like hibernating animals. They wake up, they eat a bunch of stuff after dislodging all the berries and twigs and all the stuff that was up the keister. They look around, they eat a bunch and then put stuff back in to plug it up and go back to bed. But if they're gonna talk, we're gonna listen because what they say should matter. And I assume it would be prepared, rehearsed, ready to roll with clear and concise messaging. That's all you can expect from an owner. All the eyes of Major League Baseball are on a few things. We've said they're all on Stephen Cohn, that's true. They're also on a guy named Peter Seidler. Peter Seidler is the owner of the San Diego Padres who became the controlling owner when he took control from a man named Ron Fowler. Ron Fowler was a nice, jolly guy who treated the San Diego Padres as the team that they are and were, having never won a World Series. He used the revenue that he had to put a product on the field that he thought gave him the best chance to win. He was very involved in collective bargain agreements, involved in the labor committee, a very, very smart man. He eventually gave up control to one of his partners, Peter Seidler, who is an accomplished man, also one of the owners of, wait for it, yeah, uh, the baseball making company Rawlings, but that's not really relevant, unless it is. Conspiracy theory alert, am I nuts to think that Peter Seidler would have an idea whether or not the balls are gonna be dead or juiced, or they're all within the right frame? and the band, so there's actually no incremental benefit to his team? Yeah, that'd be ridiculous. He has nothing to do with the balls. Nah, it's just owning of the company. What am I, nuts? Peter Seidler took over and decided we're not the San Diego Padres of yesteryear. We are the San Diego Padres where we are signing Manny Machado. Gave him 300 million over 10 years. We're gonna trade for Juan Soto. We're gonna get you, Derv you Darvish, Blake Snell. We're gonna keep going. 
How about getting Xander Bogarts? And then he took the microphone yesterday and he wants you all to know that he couldn't give a good goddamn that they've got the third highest payroll in baseball. He doesn't care that other owners think that he's absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He's watched the commissioner say that he doesn't understand how what San Diego's doing is sustainable financially because surprise, it's not. San Diego, if they have an owner who's rich and wants to spend money on losses, fans are happy. He actually looked you right in the face yesterday and said, you guys go nuts. That's his actual quote. Players respond to the fans and we've seen fans go nuts when they get to watch our players perform. I've been to a lot of games in my time. I've seen some winning. I've seen some losing. I don't think I've ever seen nuts. Like jumping up and down, screaming and hugging and crying. That's a World Series. I've never really described anything as nuts. I'll tell you, you know, starting now, I can describe something that's nuts. How about this? How about having an owner saying, I don't spend too much time, if any, thinking about what other people are thinking. Truly, I care about what we're thinking in this room in San Diego. And to me, it just feels great. That would make me nuts if I were the president of a different team or I were in the commissioner's office and here's why. If you've got enough owners thinking this way and we're beginning to hear more and more owners talk this way, you are ready for a battle of the owners. I don't know how to differently explain to you the problem that we are having in Major League Baseball, dollar bet, dollar fine, dollar loss, ding, ding, ding. Even on the live show, Coke, I lose a dollar. It's they, this is year six. This is the sixth season I am removed from baseball. And I'm still saying we. Wow, I gotta talk to the therapist about that concept. I talked to the therapist about a bunch of stuff regarding baseball. There's certain trigger dates that happen. First day of spring training is a trigger date, the reporting date, and then the first full workout, the first spring training game, opening day. There's certain things that I still think about, what I was doing, where I was doing, how I felt. I miss it, but I love all of you. I wouldn't rather be anywhere else than doing nothing personal on this day, February 22nd. So when Peter Seidler talks, here's how it works inside MLB, side note, they get the uh, transcript of every owner who gives the remarks. There are people who are taking it off video and then they're writing it down and they let the commissioner see it. And then the PR people are pointing out to the commissioner within the commissioner's office, hey, we have this issue, we have this issue, we have this issue. It's sort of like the issues of the day. Part of the commissioner's day every day is owner issues. And he delegates some of them to his deputy commissioner who may delegate some to people below him. Some of them, the, the commissioner says, I gotta speak directly to this owner. Rob Manford is not calling Peter Seidler about his comments but he understands very well that part of this economic reform committee is dealing with owners who are all of a sudden not caring about the game, they're only caring about their own team. The words that were given to us by Selig and Manford were always the same when we were in owners meetings. It is we want you to compete with each other, but understand that you are all owners of the same business. You are all franchisees of the same company. You all need each other to succeed in ways that are financial. So you compete on the field for results in a game, but you work together for results in an industry. 
and it always made perfect sense to me. I was more than happy to despise everyone in the National League East and want to win every game and hope they lose every game and root against them when they're playing anybody. When you're in the game long enough, you eventually are rooting against so many teams that you can't even watch because you want both to lose and you know someone's going to win. But at the same time, when you're in a meeting or you get a memo that says that a team has sold for a certain amount that raises the value of your team or a team has done something to change the way fans are interacting and change the way broadcasters are interacting, therefore lifting revenue for their team, and you say, can I copy that? Am I able to copy that? Is that good for the sport? These are all things that you do when you are teammates with someone. There's a healthy competition, but there's an understanding that you have to work with respect toward your teammates. Too many owners have been speaking up recently and talking about, hey, it's all for one and one for me. And you put that against other owners who are talking and saying, if there's so many of these owners who have such payrolls that are so high that it's ruining the chance of our team to even compete, is that good for the league? Does that cause our fans to not go nuts when they show up to spring training and they're despondent because they didn't get the great free agent. They don't feel like they have a shot. They just feel as though they're starting the long slog toward mediocrity, ending in games during the summer that don't matter. So the dog days of summer drive them nuts. All of that is part of the flow of baseball. That's the beauty of the sport. It's supposed to be that 30 teams in spring training have the hope that they can play meaningful games in the summer with the realization that 10 of them will be in the dog days of summer playing meaningless games by August. You hope it's a different 10 over the course of 10 years that 20 of the teams have that feeling because that means that 20 of the teams have the feeling of competitive games throughout the season. And if enough fan bases have enough competitive games throughout the season, that makes for a successful sport that increases its revenue and the value of each of its assets. But the way things are going in baseball right now, the difference between the haves and the have-nots is becoming even more pronounced, not just by payroll, but it's becoming more pronounced by the actions of these owners, the selfish actions of these owners. Peter Seidler telling you that our situation is unique? No, it's not. The San Diego Padres are not in a unique position. Just because they tell you they have 24,000 season ticket holders and they have a wait list and they're gonna draw 3 million people, yippee kaye, mofo, that does not mean that their situation is unique. They are not printing money, they're losing money. You can book it that they are losing money operationally this year, but who cares, David? No one wants to hear that. John Middleton, the owner of the Phillies said it. No one cares if I'm losing money. My legacy is trophies. Okay, what's your legacy when you lose money, then you can't win, you don't win, and then you get rid of the players you had, and then you're doing fire sales left, right, and center. Hands up if you've ever done fire sales trying to win a trophy, you don't win it, and then you trade everyone away and start pushing the boulder back up the mountain. Hi, my name's David. Okay, no stroke. I just did the stroke test if you're not watching live on YouTube, which you should be, because we're having fun. Hi, my name's David, tongue's out, we're good. Yeah, I've done it, it doesn't work. Our situation is unique. We believe that if we continue to build that trust, they will continue to come. If you build it, they will come. What do we got, James Earl Costner here? That's Peter's point of view? 
We're going to build the trust and you're going to keep on coming. Here's when they're going to stop coming, when you don't win. Then we went to Jupiter, Florida. I could spend an entire show talking about Bruce Sherman, the owner of the Marlins, and what he said to the media. But before I do, I want to point out one thing that is going to sound personal to you, but given the name of the show, I want you to know it's not personal. It's just going to seem that way. When Bruce Sherman bought the Marlins from Jeffrey Loria, and it was Bruce Sherman's money, but it was Derek Jeter's face. When they closed that transaction, before they started, they wanted to make sure that certain people who worked for me, namely Andre Dawson, Tony Perez, Jeff Conine, and Jack McKeon, legends of the game, that all of them were dismissed. And so I did. Then they were offered jobs when there was a bunch of PR saying, how could you fire these four legends? They were all offered jobs by Derek Jeter at a fraction of what they were making with a tenth of a fraction of what their responsibilities used to be, showing no respect, no problem. They wanted to bring their own guys in, Posada, etc. Bring your own guys in. It's your team, do whatever you want, I'm in. But don't you come back five years later, offer Jeff Conine a job, and then say, wow, we need to have Conine around, we need that gray hair. How dare you, Bruce Sherman? How did you let Jeff Conine, Mr. Marlin, not be a part of your organization? Because Derek Jeter told you who is running that ship? Oh, I guess it was Derek, wasn't it? Well, Derek's gone. Now Bruce Sherman's doing the right thing. Jeff Conine is back in uniform with Juan Pierre. Still no Jack McKeon. Still no Tony Perez. And Andre Dawson's moved on. And the Marlins feel like they've got a team that can compete for the playoffs. I loved what Bruce Sherman said yesterday in Jupiter in front of the microphone. My expectation is to make the playoffs. Hell yeah. Forget the fact that he's delusional. Forget the fact that the Marlins have no chance to make the playoffs. But the reality is that he wants you to believe and you can look to five or six things, including a Greg Cody column in the Miami Herald and say, wow, if all the things go right, I'm going to be 6'5", 220, and you can call me Fabio. You can still say it until you get a little punch and until your hair can't grow long. And until all of a sudden you're looking in the mirror saying, man, I'm no Fabio. Bruce Sherman talked about something else that I need to point out that all owners are worried about. He thinks that you as fans just want to hear about the TV situation with Bally's going bankrupt and Bally Sports Florida, which is the network that shows the Marlins games. He just wanted to point out to you that don't you worry, all the games are going to be on TV. That's not really what fans are totally worried about. They want to know, I would hope, if you're a fan who pays attention to the business of sports by watching Nothing Personal, you would want a follow-up question from the media in Florida. Hello, why didn't anyone ask the follow-up question when he said, all games are going to be available to our fans? Terrific, Bruce. What about the money? You just did this brand spanking new TV deal that's $20 million per year less than you could have done if Cheater had just listened to that former team president who presented a TV deal on a platter for you. But all that said, you got 60 million coming your way. Maybe that's the number, maybe it's not. We'll see. But what happens if that number is not 60? Did you assume the number was 60 when you made your payroll the fourth highest in Marlins history? Or if the number's lower, are you gonna have to trade? Did you find a way to finance? Are you using the extra money from the sale of MLBAM, the extra 15 million you may have gotten? 
Can you explain to us where you're seeing the payroll going going forward as your young players start getting paid more? That is something that I never wanted to talk about with fans because I didn't want them knowing the truth, which is, man, we better get revenue. We better win. Because if we have another crappy year and we don't see the results, which we've never seen at Marlins Park, then we're going to have to make another change to the payroll and bring it down. This is our window to win. And if we don't win, we're screwed. But we want you to go nuts. So therefore, we're just going to not talk about what is right around the corner. Because if you ignore the boogeyman, then it'll just disappear. Doesn't that work? Close your eyes and there can't be anything out in the dark. The other thing Bruce Sherman talked about, which is I love when owners discuss this. There was a rumor about the Marlins being sold. He released a statement saying, you guys, crack is whack, man. This team isn't for sale. It's never been for sale. I know for a fact that's not true. And Bruce, you can call me out. But if you're telling me that there were not people who you had gone around to asking, would they want a piece of the team? Then you're the one not telling the truth. And you know what? That's okay. Do you know why? Because every team's for sale. No matter what an owner says, John Henry yesterday, we haven't sold something in 20 plus years. I told you, someone offers 10 billion for the Red Sox, sayonara. If someone came to Bruce Sherman and said, I'll give you $2.2 billion for the Miami Marlins, the Miami Marlins would be sold that second. There wouldn't be enough time for him to clean out his office. So don't go public if you're an owner saying, hey, this team is not for sale. You're stuck with me. That was his quote. You can workshop that a little better and say, I love owning this team. Of course, we wanna win more. Of course, we want higher attendance. We want to engage the community more. I want to make sure that you as a fan base in South Florida get what you deserve, and I hope I'm the person to provide it. That's a better way to say it. I always used to say, hey, if I'm not good at my job, I'm gonna get fired. And if I don't get fired because of nepotism and someone else takes over and they do a better job, then you'll look back and say, wow, that guy stunk. I get it. Are you doing that in Florida now? Maybe you are. Over in Arizona, the second of three teams who spring train where they live, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Miami Marlins, and the Arizona Diamondbacks. I always felt lucky about that in spring training. Ken Kendrick is the owner. Do you know that he hadn't spoken to the press in years? I don't know if I have that right, Coco. That feels wrong. Can it really be years? He very rarely speaks to the press. He's now an octogenarian. The president and CEO is a good man named Derek Hall who's been there a long time. And the Diamondbacks have won a World Series. You recall the 2001 World Series when Luis Gonzalez had that uh, flair over a drawn-in infield to beat the Yankees in uh, the 2001 World Series right after 9-11. It was insanity. And Tim McCarver, who recently passed away, who was calling that World Series, actually called out Joe Torre, who was the manager of the Yankees, saying, why are you bringing the infield in when Mariano Rivera throws cutters and therefore it's broken bats, no good contact, and you could get a duck fart and all of a sudden you're going to lose the World Series. And then boom, it happened. I got to speak to Joe about that play. Yes, I did. Because I was there, right, when Joe lost in 03. And I watched him lose an 01. And when he went into the commissioner's office and he did a Samson sit down, we, we've talked a lot about those decisions. And he, he does what managers do, which is, yeah, man, that was a bad one. I would probably do the same thing again today if I had the choice, but phew, that did not quite work out.
Anyway, Ken Kendrick owns the Diamondbacks, doesn't speak too often. And it struck me by what he said yesterday, and it scared me. I think about the cycle of new stadiums in Major League Baseball, and we have spent all our time focused on Tampa and Oakland. They do not have new ballparks. Oakland plays in that crappy Coliseum. Tampa plays in the Thunderdome where the lease runs out in 2027, and they're not going to stay there. It's old. There's no amenities. There's no ability to build revenue. In addition, there's no fans. And what Rob Manfred has been saying to you is that we're not going to expand and baseball wants to expand to 32 teams. That is going to happen in our lifetimes. There will be 32 teams, 16 per league, realignment in divisions. All of that is on the board. We sat in meetings and drew out new divisions, new getting rid of divisions, having just 32 teams without divisions. We looked at all sorts of interesting possibilities in these committees. The commissioner has been very clear. He's not going to do it until these stadium situations are taken care of. That's good business. But then something happened. It took Tampa Bay and Oakland so long to get their stadium situation taken care of that now they're not the last teams that need new stadiums. Arizona needs a new stadium, which is hard to imagine since Chase Field to me feels like yesterday, but Chase Field is done in 2027 also. They could spend hundreds of millions of dollars to make it a first-class stadium. They've been fighting with the local politicians in Arizona because there is no money right now to make the improvements necessary to make Chase Field a first-class stadium again. It has to be completely redone with new opportunities for revenue. Stadiums are going to be smaller, more premium areas, fewer areas where there's actual seats, so more areas to congregate, more club-like areas. That's the new thing with these new ballparks that you're going to see. But Arizona is now right there with Tampa and Oakland is needing a new stadium. So even if Major League Baseball takes care of since of, of, of Tampa and of Oakland, do they then wait to have to take care of Arizona? So the way it works is in cycles. In the minds of baseball, Camden Yards was the first new stadium. Some say it's U.S. Cellular Field, but Camden Yards, the first new stadium, then Oakland, Tampa, that's the end of the cycle. They are going to make a move in Major League Baseball as it relates to expansion once Tampa and Oakland are taken care of. Because if they didn't set a limit to a cycle, it would be an unending cycle. It would just keep generating new new teams that need new stadiums all the time. And if you kept waiting for that cycle to end, you would not act. So if you know that from a business standpoint, you've got to get expansion revenue into the hands of the owners to help them pay down COVID-related and acquisition-related debt, then you know you've got to set an end to the cycle and make a decision to expand and take away markets as leverage for the next few teams who are in existing stadiums who need to use other cities as leverage to get their old stadium redone or a new stadium in their old city near their old stadium. And that's what you're going to see. And Ken Kendrick addressed that. He talked about that he has no interest in moving the team. He's not using leverage for relocation because he knows they've talked about it with baseball. You can only use relocation as leverage if it's actually within the realm of possibility. We knew we were never going to relocate the Marlins, but you didn't. The public officials didn't. It was still within the realm of possibility. We didn't want to do it. 
We didn't think any other markets were as good as Miami. We didn't think we had a chance to get a deal done anywhere other than Miami, but we were able to threaten it because it was possible. Arizona is not gonna be able to use that threat because they're at the beginning of the cycle. Now, the beginning of the last cycle, little known fact here, Normie, and this is before many of you were born, depending on the current demographics of the show on February 22nd of 2023, did you know that the Chicago White Sox at one point threatened to relocate? I don't know if you know that. Did you, Coca? Does that sound familiar? Do you know that Tampa used to be used as a city to relocate to? Everybody was gonna relocate. The San Francisco Giants were gonna relocate to Tampa. Did you know that? Everyone used Tampa. And then Tampa got an expansion team. And then all of a sudden you can't use Tampa anymore as the scapegoat, that's not the word, as the laughing cow, that's not the word, the straw animal, the Helen of Troy, God dang it, Coca. What am I using? The skate, not the, what's the word in my head? This is live, man. We're doing it. I'm not quitting this until you tell me the word when you use something and it's fake, but you hold it up there. I think it's like the Helen of Troy, that thing that you roll in that's not real. Yeah, whatever. The Trojan horse. Hell yeah, Coca. Tampa was used as the Trojan horse by so many teams, but then it couldn't be used that way anymore. Can we just cut that and pretend that I knew the word from the beginning, Coca, do you mind? Even though we're live for the next time when you put it out on YouTube, just ready, here we go, ready? Four, six, nine. Tampa was used as a Trojan horse for many franchises who wanted to relocate. But once Tampa was granted a franchise, all of a sudden it couldn't be used as a Trojan horse, so then other markets had to be used as a Trojan horse. Does that sound familiar? Hi, Vegas. Okay, when we come back, we're gonna review a movie that we watched that just came out, and then we're gonna talk about a question that you asked about what's going on in Alabama, because it is absolutely disgraceful. We'll be right back here on Nothing Personal. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. We're back. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's David Sampson and Matthew Coca coming to you every day, live three days a week, but we're daily. I didn't get my cough out during that break. It was way too short. Wait for it one second if you don't mind. Thank you. I try to use the break for that. Sharper. One of you tweeted at me at David P. Sampson and said, please watch Sharper because you know I love Julianne Moore. You know Sebastian Stan from Pam and Tommy. I'm going to want to see him. 
I had never heard of Brianna Middleton, but she was quite good. And Justice Smith always is good. And if you put John Lithgow in a movie, I'm watching. Sharper is a movie that is a sort of a whodunit movie, except it's not a murder. It's more of a scam, a con, The Grifters. Have you ever heard of that movie, The Grifters, with John Cusack and Angelica Houston and Annette Benning? I believe they starred in that movie. That may be a long time ago. I'm not sure what year that is. So this movie is about people conning each other for money. It reminded me of the Heartbreakers movie with Sigourney Weaver and Jason Lee and the woman from Can't Hardly Wait, whose name escapes me. Hewitt, Hewitt, come on, Coca, my brain is fried. Is today Thursday? I'm feeling like it's a bit like Thursday. Anyway, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Thank you, Coca. So you're watching Sharper thinking, I don't get this. Ooh, that person's getting screwed. Oh my God, that person was doing the screwing. Oh no, no, that person's getting screwed. Oh, I get it now. I watched through the entire movie and I didn't know who was getting screwed because everyone I thought getting screwed was doing the screwing. And at the end of the day, everyone got screwed except for one person. Amazing, Sharper. You wanna check it out. It keeps your mind going. If, you, if you're one of those people who needs to read spoilers, don't. If you're one of those people who needs to know always who's in charge of the screwing, don't. Let yourself go. Enjoy it. Sharper. Great performance by Brianna, by the way. All right. One of you asked a question, and we're going to answer it. Coca? You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. That's from a movie called Half-Baked. Half-Baked is starring Dave Chappelle. There's a character named Samson. If you have a question for the show... Put it in Twitter at David P. Sampson. Go on Apple and write reviews if that's your thing. Go to YouTube and hit subscribe. Everybody listening to this or watching this show, please go to the Nothing Personal YouTube channel and hit subscribe and tell your friends to all do it. It doesn't take very long. And then ask a question. I know you talk about crisis PR a lot. True. Look at the quotes from Nate Oates in this article about his superstar freshman, Brandon Miller, being the one who brought the gun used in a murder. My God. Well, let me give you the background to this. Thank you for asking. I wish you would have had a, hey, David, how you doing? Or hello, David, or what's shaking, David? What's up, David? Hello, Mr. David, anything. But your question was too important not to address, so it made the show. So I'm not even gonna say your name back by saying hi. There was a serious problem with the number two team in the country, Alabama. We're getting close to March Madness. Those of you watching live just saw a commercial. It's almost March. We're like eight days or seven days away. There has been violence on campus. There have been murders on campus. And a player named Brandon Miller, who's a potential lottery pick, was a potential lottery pick, got himself right in the middle of a problem because there was a dispute going on on campus. And someone asked, hey, can I have your gun, please? Can you come over here with your gun, purportedly? He goes over to the scene, gives the gun, goes away, and all of a sudden, bang, someone shot and dead. Alabama coach Nate Oates was asked about this and I can't make it up. I could read you the quote, but I want you to listen to what he said about what Brandon Miller did with his gun. About that, I mean, you know, can't control everything anybody does outside of practice. Nobody knew that was gonna happen. College kids are out, 
Brandon hasn't been in any type of trouble, nor is he in any trouble, type of trouble on this case. Like, no wrong spot at the wrong time. So, Wrong spot at the wrong time. Don't get me started on gun. Second Amendment, gun control, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fall for it. But if you are a coach of a team and you take the microphone, the best you come up with, where's your athletic director? Where's your PR person? Not in any trouble? It's fine to take a gun, to give it to somebody? What do you think? They wanted to put it in their collection? Did he think he was bringing the gun to a situation that were, where there was a dispute, but that it was there just to be used as, hey, I'm not really going to shoot you. Just curious, were there bullets in the gun? Did you bring the bullets separately? Did you have the bullets under lock and key and say, I think this is probably a bad idea. I'll give you the gun, but no ammunition. B-Y-O-A. I'm not going to in any way help you. As a matter of fact, I'll bring you a toy gun. How about a water gun? Maybe a paint gun. And then you put your coach out in front of the world of a program where in theory, you're being looked at as a juggernaut this season. And the best you can say is, Brandon hasn't been in any type of trouble, nor is he in any type of trouble. Wrong spot at the wrong time. It's not like he got run over by a bus or hit by a meteor. That would be the wrong time. Wrong place, wrong spot. Oh my God, I'm walking to New York City under scaffolding. Who would have thought someone dropped a penny off the Empire State Building? I'm finding it extremely frustrating. Now, this is one of his players who's scoring about 19 points a game, getting eight rebounds, a star player on a top-ranked team. But don't worry, he's not in any type of trouble. That was approved by the AD. It's shameful. It's so shameful that it didn't last even a day. People looked at that little press moment and called up, maybe hopefully the president of Alabama saw it, called up the AD and said, if you'd like to keep your job, we may want to slightly amend what your head basketball coach is saying or else I'm going to fire his ass because it's making me nuts. The fact that it is so embarrassing that he would say what he said, not even a few hours later, just a few hours. Let me read the next thing he did, but not from a microphone. I thought it was important for me to clarify the unfortunate remarks I made earlier. God, that I used to hate leading statements with that because it means we royally screwed up earlier. This entire time, I've tried to be thoughtful of my words relative to this tragic incident, and my statements came across poorly. I know Alabama has a good PR department, but let me just give you some help. It's not that statements ever come across poorly. It's the statements that are said that are poor come across poorly. Good statements never come across poorly. They can be delivered badly. They can be delivered without umph, without emotion. But non-poor statements don't come across poorly. Only poor statements do. So don't ever say that my statements came across poorly. Own it. What I said was wrong. That's all you have to say. What I said was wrong. He still won't do it. He ended it by saying, in no way did I intend to downplay the seriousness of this situation or the tragedy of that night. My prayers continue to go out to Jamea Harris's family. He was obviously forced to release this statement, except it wasn't even powerful. It wasn't even right. Somebody's dead 
and your player had something to do with it. Whether your player faces charges or not is irrelevant. Your player supplied the gun purportedly that was used to shoot someone dead. And the best you're gonna do is say a prayer after an initial comment on the microphone. Here's a little hint for all of you when you make a mistake about something when it comes to death or tragedy, you start with that. When you have not acknowledged the underlying issue or tragedy of the event that is being discussed and you're forced to do a second statement about it, you lead with it. Let me start. Remember when George Floyd and all of the other black people were getting killed by police and how absolutely horrific it was and there were some statements made that had to be then clarified and covered up. You always started with, let me start by saying, I'm thinking about and praying for the Floyd family. You start with that. I understand how it is. You know, Coco, we have this uh, consulting business that we do when we investigate front offices at Samson, Samson, Coca, and Coca. We get paid all this money by team owners to investigate their own front office and then write a report saying, hey, everyone was bad except the owner. They didn't know what was going on and neither did the president. Yeah, that's a great business we have. I got another business we should do. Why aren't we doing PR work for people? Why can't we have organizations call nothing personal and say, excuse me, can you write a statement for us? I think we'd be damn good at that. We'd be sure as heck better at that than picking hockey games. I'm back to seven games under 24 and 31. I thought plus money on the Vancouver Canucks would be outstanding. They're down 4-2. They tied it up like with 16 seconds left on a tip-in. And I'm thinking, hallelujah, I got myself a victory in plus money. And then there's that gosh dog ding shootout that makes me nuts and gives me a loss. 24 and 31. We reviewed all the breeze yesterday. Well, I'm putting myself in that category. I'm taking a breather today. We're 24 and 31 and I have no pick for tonight. Do you remember on December 6th of 2022, just a couple months ago. Is that how recent it was? That's it? I thought it was way before that, Coca. I told you that Nate McMillan was going to get fired as coach of the Atlanta Hawks because Nate McMillan was not getting along with his star player, Trey Young. Trey Young is one of the top players in the NBA, certainly a top 20 player. And if you're not getting along with your coach, guess who's going to win that? It ain't Steve Nash, and it wasn't going to be Nate McMillan. Yesterday, it was announced that Nate McMillan has been dumped from the eighth seed Atlanta Hawks, the team that should have been better, the team that actually advanced a couple rounds not more than a year ago. Nate McMillan took over in 2021, did fine. Not so fine last year. This year, see you later. I wonder how that went with Trey Young. Nah, I don't need to wonder. I'll tell you exactly how it went. There was such a level of frustration between Trey Young and Nate McMillan that the general manager and the owner of the Hawks, Jamie Gertz's husband, no less. Maybe it was Jamie Gertz. Maybe it was Robert Downey. Maybe it was Andrew McCarthy. I don't know, but it was less than zero. Somebody came and said, hey, Trey, it's enough, right? I, we need more out of you. What do, what do we need to do? I told you, fire McMillan. Well, can you not play for him for real? I've been telling you I don't want to play for him anymore. Don't make me go public again. And they fired him. I actually tend to agree with this call. 
You can't trade Trey Young. You can't fire Trey Young. There are many instances where I don't want the player to have this to have a say like that. But when you're the Atlanta Hawks and you just have not had the success that you need to have that you've ever had as a franchise, and you know you have a window of opportunity here with Trey Young, and you know that the coach that you brought in for whatever reason cannot work with your superstar, you are not trading the superstar. Well, I agree that a coach has to have the ability to discipline the superstar and treat every player the same when it comes to discipline, when it comes to following team rules, all of that is right. You can't let your superstar have a bigger chair in the clubhouse. You can't let him be late. You can't let him not practice hard. You can't do any of those things. But there are things that an organization does do with superstars to let them know that they agree and understand that they are superstars. It can be in terms of plays that are called on the on the court. It can be in terms of rooms in a hotel. That sounds crazy, but we would place players in rooms at a hotel according to room locations. Some people like to be the elevator. Some people don't. Some people like to have suites. Some people don't. There are definite strategies that are used where you can differentiate players where their club, where their locker is in the locker room. Who gets to shower first? Where they sit on the bus? Sounds crazy. Which plays are called for them in certain situations? What they like to do in terms of their rest and recovery post playing a certain number of minutes or throwing a certain number of pitches? We can pay attention to plenty of things and differentiate without giving them the power to hire or fire. But in this case, there was no way that Trey and Nate were ever going to work together moving forward. So what do you do? You fire Nate. What I don't understand when you know that you've got a problem between your coach and your superstar, why would there ever be a time when you extend that coach or sign that coach to a huge deal when there's a new coach coming in? I've never been a fan of it. Our owner was certainly a fan of it. I was never a fan of signing long-term deals to first-time coaches. When you give them that type of deal to start with, you are saying to them, if it doesn't work out after a year, I'm talking to you, Ozzie Gian. We're going to pay you the other three years. I'd rather sign you to a one-year deal knowing you would have signed a one-year deal, and I'm rather pay you more than you expected in year two, three, or four because we'll know by then whether or not you are the right fit. When you bring in a coach into a situation, you don't know. No matter if it's the best coach with the best pedigree right out of the booth, you think for sure that Sean Payton is going to turn around the Broncos and make Russell Wilson the great Russell Wilson again? Are you positive? You gave Sean Payton a contract that is so large and so long. What happens if he's lost his touch? What happens if he can't do what you thought he could do? You're totally stuck. What happens if he and Russ Wilson don't get along and you're stuck with Russ Wilson? What do you do with Sean Payton? Well, we're going to find out. It's already rumored that they're going to go after Quinn Snyder, the former coach of the Utah Jazz. He's next up in line. Will they go from a black coach to a white coach? Is everyone going to focus on that? Well, there's one person who's focused on that, and there's one person who I promise you will not be coaching the Atlanta Hawks, and that is Jim Caldwell. Jim Caldwell is an assistant coach right now at the Carolina Panthers, a former head coach in the NFL. He is black, and he announced, I am not coming back. I am not interviewing anymore for another head coaching position. This type of announcement or pronouncement is going to make Roger Goodell very disappointed, very unhappy because it cuts to part of the meat of the Brian Flores lawsuit from last year, 
where black head coaches were not getting extra chances, that white head coaches were coming in and taking their place. Jim Caldwell did interview for the Broncos, the position that went to Sean Payton, and Jim Caldwell just said, that's it. No more. I don't want to do it. And he actually stood up and said, he's coached the Colts, he's coached the Lions. He said, I'm not worried about the future or anything else. I don't plan on being a head coach from this point forward. Basically, what he was saying is that in his mind, he does not want to be the token Rooney rule interview. If enough coaches come out and say that, think about the power. Coco was talking to me pre-show today. We were talking about this topic. And he actually said, think about the power if every black coach and black coordinator just resigned right now, including Mike Tomlin. I don't know if you'd include, including Mike McDaniel, I guess. Everyone just stepped down all at once in unison and in unity with Brian Flores and Jim Caldwell. Do you think Roger Goodell would then step up? Would changes be made? Would any coaches actually do that? Would any coordinators? Would you? How willing are you to take a position that would actually go against your ability to earn a living for you or your family, but you felt so strongly about a position that you would give it all up, something that you love the most? Is there anything that you would do that for? If you knew that you could plant a seed and then the tree that would grow from that seed would literally shade the world and change it, are you planting that seed knowing that that tree is not growing till you're gone? How much are you willing to sacrifice? Your freedom, your ability, your chance of success? Is that really what it takes to make a change is to have enough people all decide to do what Jim Caldwell did? Is it honorable what he did? Is it because he knows that he's not gonna get another head coaching job? Is it because he doesn't wanna be embarrassed by interviewing for all these jobs and not getting them? He'd rather continue to be a coordinator, earn a living and go along his path? I find it both fascinating and actually sad that he felt the need to talk like this. The reason I found it fascinating and sad is that he's in a position where in fact, he could have made a difference. How about if he had gotten up instead and said, I didn't get the jobs this year, but I was a part of most of the winning seasons the Lions have ever had when I was their coach. And I'm confident that I'm gonna be a head coach in this league again, and I'm gonna just wait my turn. But I know there's an owner out there who will see the value in me leading their team, and I'm gonna be there when my time arrives. Now, of course, that's easy for me to say. But how about the strength of that message? The message he delivered yesterday was plenty strong, but if he's alone delivering that message, the impact will not have what you think it will have. Who's gonna follow him or who's gonna step right over him? We're gonna wait to see that. At the end of the day, it's just business. Thanks for your time today. We'll be back tomorrow, I promise. This is nothing personal. Oh, 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 oh,